Lord Jesus, how we are um, in awe of you, in awe of this God, the Son of God, who set aside his glory and came to earth and took on the human nature and uh, died on a cross. We're in awe of this, Lord. Why would you have loved us with an everlasting love? Why would you have given yourself in this way? Tonight we celebrate um, uh, your sacrifice and we celebrate your supper. And uh, we pray, Lord, that uh, what we do here would bring you glory and uh, would be a a poignant um, and unique reminder of this great salvation and our great Savior of it. We pray it in your name. Amen. The Maundy Thursday service draws its name from uh, two Latin words, mandatum novum, which uh, is taken from John 13, the upper room in which... uh, Our Lord said a new commandment, I give you that you love one another as I have loved you. In that extended passage of the upper room discourse in John chapter 14, a chapter filled with many, many promises, our Lord says to his disciples then and by application says to us now, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, or as some translations say, comfortless. I will come to you. A little while longer, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you live also. At that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Let's pray. Our Father, again, as we bow before you this evening, we rejoice in such an amazing love that has been poured out upon us in such redeeming fullness in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that in Christ, mercy and truth have met together, righteousness and peace have embraced And that we are able to come before you this evening as forgiven people, as redeemed people, as people who are clothed in the perfect, impeccable righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We invite you tonight, O God, by your Spirit to exalt and honor Christ in our midst, to apply to us his redeeming work, and that as we come to the table of the Lord this evening, might we be enabled by faith to feed upon him in whom alone there is life and peace and joy forevermore. This we ask our Father in Christ's name. Amen. We've sung two songs tonight by Isaac Watts. And this is a piece of poetic uh, verse written by the same. Listen. Infinite grief, amazing woe, Behold my bleeding Lord. Hell and the Jews conspired his death and used the Roman sword. Oh, the sharp pangs of smarting pain my dear Redeemer bore. When knotty whips and ragged thorns his sacred body tore. But knotty whips and ragged thorns in vain do I accuse. In vain I blame the Roman bands. In vain, the spiteful Jews. T'were you, my sins, my cruel sins, Christ's chief tormentors were. 
Each of my crimes became a nail and unbelief the spear. T'were you that pulled the vengeance down upon his guiltless head. Break, break my heart. Oh, burst mine eyes and let my sorrows bleed. Strike, mighty grace, my flinty soul till melting waters flow. And deep repentance drown mine eyes in undissembled woe. I don't think it's necessary for me to um, explain the significance of the night. I think uh, we all know that. And one of the things that I think that's also tucked into the, to the minds of Christians everywhere is that what we find happening um, on these closing hours of Jesus' life was, was something that was in, in large measure predicted centuries before it occurred. And um, one of the, I guess, most poignant proofs of the, of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ is that so much of his life and death were predicted long before he was ever born. Perhaps the best Old Testament example of that is Isaiah 53. If you've never heard of Isaiah 53, let me tell you just a brief bit about it. It, it has even its own title. It's called the Suffering Servant Passage. Uh, you've sung it. You didn't maybe perhaps know where it came from, but uh, you've sung it. You've, it's included in so much uh, Christian hymnody and, and um, Handel's Messiah. And it's, it's a pass- it contains passages that, that are very familiar to so many of you, I'm sure. With that, having, having said all that, I want us to read it together. We're going to read it responsively. You don't need your Bible. Uh, it's going to be up on the screen for you. I'm going to read the first verse, and then I'll lead you in the second, and I'll, lead the third, I'll read the third, and then I'll lead you in the fourth. And, and it'll, be, it'll be broadcast for you up here, um, displayed for you. In, um, in perhaps a, hopefully not... Um, overly showy display of respect for the night and for this book, I'd like to ask you to stand as we read together. We're going to read Psalm 53, excuse me, Isaiah 53. We're going to read Isaiah 53 responsibly, and I'll, I'll carry you. I mean, this, there'll be many places to pause, so just stay with me. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. 
But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Thank you and be seated. I also have a text that I'd like to read you. It's out of Matthew 26. You might want to just listen. It's, um, it's very familiar. And it's, of course, taken from this last night of Christ's death. I only have seven verses. So just tune into this. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, Not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. The grass withers and the flower fades. 
But the word of our God endures forever. The New Testament includes three separate accounts of the same event, this the same Gethsemane event. It's included in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in case you're wondering, it was Luke who included the feature about the, the, uh, the bloody sweat, not included by Matthew. But this whole event is upsetting. It's upsetting not so much because of the blood and the gore. For many of us, the most upsetting feature of this ordeal is that in the midst of it, Jesus refers to the cup. And then he asks his father if it be possible that it might be taken from him so that he doesn't have to drink it. What is going on? Is he, is he turning back? Has he changed his mind? Is he having second thoughts? Has... Has some kind of doubt or fear crept into him? Gang, it is, it is, it is statements like these that have evoked um, musical, uh, Broadway musicals like Jesus Christ Superstar, depicting Jesus as some kind of um, disillusioned, confused leader of men. What's going on? There have been countless others who have approached their own death with far greater resolve than Jesus. Others have faced their death with with what seems to be more apparent heroism than does Jesus. For instance, Socrates in his uh, prison cell in Athens. According to Plato's account of his death, Plato says this about the death of Socrates. He says, he took his cup of hemlock without trembling or changing color of expression. He then raised the cup to his lips and very cheerfully and quietly drained it. When his friends burst into tears, he rebuked them for their absurd behavior and urged them to keep quiet and be brave. Socrates died without fear, without protest, without sorrow. So was Socrates braver than Jesus? Or were their cups filled with a different kind of poison? Folks, it was Jesus himself who had taught his followers that when we were insulted or persecuted or or slandered, that we were to, to rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Did Jesus not practice what he preached? His apostles did. You may recall, I think it's in Acts 5, where Peter and the the apostles had been dragged before the Sanhedrin, and they had been beaten to a pulp. And after this savage beating, they they leave the Sanhedrin. and, And the text says, they rejoiced because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for his name. Pain and rejection, at least for them, was a joy and a privilege, not an ordeal to be shrunk from in in all kinds of horror, as you see being portrayed here. Even in the the post 
apostolic era, after the New Testament was completed in the second century, there, there seemed to be among Christians a longing to be united with Christ in his martyrdom. Ignatius, the bishop of Antioch in Syria, at the beginning of the second century, on his way to Rome to be tried for his religious views, begged the church there not to attempt to, to, to release him or set him free or deprive him of what he called the honor. He says, and I quote, let fire and the cross, let the companies of wild beasts, let breaking of bones and tearing of limbs, let the grinding of the whole body and all the malice of the devil come upon me. Be it so, if only I may gain Christ Jesus. A few years later, in the same century, in the middle of the second century, Polycarp, the 86-year-old bishop of Smyrna, having refused to escape death, either by fleeing or by denying Christ, was eventually burned at the stake. And just before the fire was lit, this is what he prayed. O Father, I bless thee that thou hast counted me worthy to receive my portion among the number of martyrs. And then the fire was lit underneath him. Another name that's probably not familiar to St. Albans, he was considered the, the first known British Christian martyr. Um, he was martyred during one of the severe persecutions in the third century. But um, he was savagely beaten. And yet his biographers point out that he suffered, that when he suffered, uh, he suffered the same patiently, nay, rather joyfully for the Lord's sake. And then he was beheaded. And so it's continued on to every generation. Richard Baxter the great Puritan, I think of the 17th century, said, Oh, the joy that the martyrs of Christ have felt in, in the midst of the scorching flames. Although made of flesh and blood like us, their souls could rejoice even while their bodies were burning. And perhaps even more recent, 60 years ago, it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. In his last words that he said to his cellmate before he was marched off to the place of execution at the, the Fossenberg uh, concentration camp, Bonhoeffer said, This is the end, but for me the beginning of life. And we come back to this, this scene in the Garden of Gethsemane, to this lonely figure that's lying prostrate in an olive orchard, Sweating, grieving, overwhelmed with, with grief and dread, begging that if it be possible that he'd be spared from the drinking of this cup. What is in that cup? The martyrs were joyful, but he's sorrowful. The, the martyrs were eager, but, but he's reluctant. How could they have gained their inspiration from him? As you watch him falter before his death, when, when they did not. 
And what's even more confusing is that up to this point, he had been so clear-headed about his determination to, to experience the sufferings and death and determined to fulfill his destiny and vehemently opposing any kind of attempt to, to stop it or to, to deflect his, his, him in his path. Had it all suddenly been forgotten now? Has it all changed? Was he now, after all, when, when this moment of his destiny had come, is he now to be found to be a coward? How do we explain the profound horror? What could it possibly be that he saw in that cup? Ladies and gentlemen, that's a very clear Old Testament symbol that Jesus would have certainly understood, and so would Judaism. It symbolizes not the, the physical pain of being flogged and crucified, nor does it symbolize the, the mental distress of being despised and rejected by, by even his own countrymen. It is a symbol of the spiritual agony involved in bearing the sins of the world. It is, or his horror is attached with the thought of enduring the divine judgment which sin evoked. Jesus saw in that cup the wine of God's wrath. And he was about to drink it down and to bear the judgment for the sin of his people. And from that, his sinless soul recoils. The agony of bearing divine judgment. That's what he saw in there. The agony of bearing the judgment, the weight of God's judgment for sin, which would include... An alienation from his own beloved father. That engulfed this sinless soul. The thought of being abandoned by his father. That was the torment of all torments. Although in theory, everything is possible to God. Yes. And yet, what Jesus asks here is not possible. God's purpose of love was to save sinners and to save them righteously. But that would be impossible without the, without the death of the sin-bearing, suffering, spotless Lamb of God. And so... When Peter, in the garden, draws his sword in some kind of frantic attempt to avert his arrest, Jesus was able to say to him, Peter, uh uh-uh. Shall I not drink this cup that the Father has given me? It was in knowing that it was the Father that had given it to him. It was the Father that handed him this cup. 
and he must drink it down. My friends, not until you understand something of of his abandonment by God will you even get close to understanding a bit of the horror of this cup. What you have here is God against God. God pitted against God. The first person of the Trinity opposing the second person of the Trinity. In a moment, when that little plastic cup touches your lips, think once again of the debt. Your debt, my debt, paid by the sinless, sin-bearing, suffering servant. May we pray. Our Father, I do pray that you will impress upon us the great weight of what we do. We can be flipping about a lot of things, but tonight we are drained of our jovialities. We are drained of our of cute. Because what we consider tonight is unfathomable. And so just give us a bit of a taste of what it meant that Jesus bore the righteous wrath of his Father for the sin of his people. Press that upon our souls. We ask it in Jesus' name.